Hello everybody, this is Julian Charles of themindrenewed.com coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today on this 22nd of January 2015, I'm very pleased indeed to welcome back to the program Robert Bowman, who kindly joined us back in 2013 to talk about the so-called word of faith movement or word faith movement within Christianity and of course the dangers and distortions of that movement. And of course we're going to be talking about a, a very different issue this time, which I shall explain in just a moment. But But first, let me say that Robert Bowman is Executive Director of the Institute for Religious Research, IRR.org, which is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry in apologetics and discernment. In addition to having taught for many years in universities, including Luther Rice University and Biola University, he has worked with several apologetics and discernment ministries and is the author of many books, including Putting Jesus in His Place, The Case for the Deity of Christ, co-written with J. Ed Komaszewski, which is a book directly applicable to the subjects at hand today, which I'll discuss in just a moment. Rob, welcome back to The Mind Renewed. It's good to be speaking with you. Nice to be with you. Now, actually, I remember the last time we spoke, I don't know whether you can remember it, but I can remember it, it was the summer, and uh, I was I was really roasting at the time, <laughs> which, which was really, really unusual for the UK. I think the thing was, there was so much noise outside, I had to close all the windows, and so I was uh, in this sort of sweat chamber. It was very unpleasant. So I'm glad to say it's a much nicer atmosphere here. In fact, it's kind of freezing outside. So anyway, it's much more pleasant circumstances for me anyway. What's things like for you? Oh, we, we've got snow. <laughs> <laughs> you have snow. We've yeah. managed to avoid that so far. We get months of it in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Wow. Yep. Uh, you must be very kitted out to uh, cope with that. We're very bad at coping with things like snow. We're terrible here in the, in the UK. You get a bit of snow and everything comes to a halt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are certain parts of the country here where that happens. But no, here everybody is quite prepared for it. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, today we're going to be discussing a book by the New Testament scholar and textual critic Bart Ehrman, and he published this book last year, and it's called How Jesus Became God, The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee. And, of course, Bart Ehrman is a a very highly regarded academic. He's James A. Gray, Distinguished Professor of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. But he's also a very well-known popular writer, and he tends to... Well, let's say he takes issue with mainstream Christianity in various ways. He's an agnostic. He's very influential, I think, largely because of this combination of his clearly gifted ability as a communicator, as a writer, and his status as an academic. And as I said to you, Rob, before the interview, the curious thing that I find is that when I'm reading um, and I so often find there are things that I, I think, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. And then I turn the page and there are things I think, oh, I don't agree with that. And it's quite a, a kind of disorientating <laughs> experience. Anyway, as I said, we're going to be looking at this particular book, How Jesus Became God. But I think first it might be a good idea to get some general picture of just who Bart Ehrman is and perhaps some insights into what makes him tick. Uh, sure, uh, very much so, because Ehrman's story Uh, His personal story is a big part of the reason why he is so popular and influential. It's a story that the media, at least here in the United States, love and have uh, promoted him vigorously because of it. You see, Ehrman, though he's an agnostic now, wasn't always one. He started out as a fundamentalist Christian. Uh, And I say fundamentalist because I want to emphasize that his views on the nature of Scripture when he was a professing Christian were very conservative, ultra-conservative. 
he was somebody who had been trained and educated in an understanding of Christianity that was quite inflexible in the way it interpreted the truth of the Bible. And we'll get into that maybe a little bit as we go along, but uh, the bottom line was that he held a view of biblical inerrancy that was unable to be accommodated to the facts. So Ehrman's story is that as he began studying the Bible, he found what he thought were contradictions in the Bible. And he also found uh, that the Bible had been copied multiple times, multiple generations of copies, and that there were a lot of variants in the manuscripts. And there were places where it was uh, at least open to debate what the original reading was. The way he tells the story, these kinds of difficulties didn't square with his understanding of biblical inerrancy. And so he came to conclude that the Bible was not inerrant. Well, he seems to have gone almost immediately from concluding that his own particular form of fundamentalist Christianity wasn't true to rejecting Christianity outright. Now, there may have been a process there, but the main problem was that he was convinced, apparently, by his academic studies that the understanding of the Bible that he had held as a young person and defended was not something he could defend any longer. And that seemed to be at least the beginning of the unraveling of his Christian faith. Well, he very quickly apparently became an agnostic, came to uh, not only deny the inerrancy of Scripture, but to deny that Jesus Christ was God incarnate or that Jesus had risen from the dead. And Ehrman is very careful in his writings to couch things in, in a way that he's not necessarily overtly denying that these things are so, but saying that he, as a scholar, as an historian, is not able to corroborate these things, and that he finds that there are problems for these claims. Uh, so you will even find him saying something to the effect that, uh, you know, it's still possible to maintain these beliefs. You can still believe these things, but you do so, in effect, in the teeth of the evidence and without any, any way of confirming that they are true. His own position now, as we've said, is that he is an agnostic. He says that he doesn't know if there's a God, but God plays no role in his understanding of the world or of the origins of the Christian religion. Uh, his account of things is a strictly naturalistic account. And Ehrman claims that that's the only thing a historian can do anyway. So even if you're a Christian, he thinks that you can't do history in any other way and be responsible about it other than in a naturalistic fashion. Yes, and I, I shall want to ask you about that, specifically with respect to the resurrection, because I think that's a very yeah. interesting claim that he makes there, and I do think it's quite philosophically unsophisticated, but um, <laughs> that's another matter. We will come on to that. Um, I did actually pick up on this business of him reading things very literally in the Bible. There is some sense of that even now, I find, in his writing, that he will take a particular passage and he will treat it in a very literal way and then back away from it and say we can't accept that. There's something of that still in his writing, I find. I think that's very insightful. I think that's correct. Another scholar who has observed this would be Daniel Wallace, who is another uh, New Testament textual critical scholar, but who is evangelical. 
And the thing is that Ehrman never apparently entertained or at least found worthy a somewhat more moderate evangelical view of the Bible or just traditional Christian view of the Bible as the Word of God uh, spoken through human beings, passed down to us by human beings, such that, yes, there will be variations in the manuscripts, there will be errors in the manuscripts. Because God was speaking through human beings, there will be at least apparent discrepancies or apparent contradictions in the Bible because we don't have all the information and we're getting it through a particular author's point of view or a particular witness's point of view. Someone who said, well, this is what I saw, uh, this is what I heard, and it may not match up exactly with the way somebody else saw or heard it. And that doesn't mean that there's an actual contradiction or that the thing didn't happen, but that the New Testament in particular we're talking about gives us actual accounts from people who saw these things and heard these things. And, and in order to preserve the integrity of those testimonies, the biblical writings do not tidy up all of the loose ends and do not express things in exactly the same way when, they're, when you have different accounts of the same event. Ehrman doesn't seem comfortable with that kind of, you know, middle-of-the-road view of the Bible. Either one takes a fundamentalist view, and you can't have those kinds of problems, or you can't really view the Bible as the Word of God at all. You can't view it as divinely inspired. That's uh, a very stark either-or that he uh, seems to operate with. And and I think that's a major weakness in his uh, scholarship when he starts talking about these critical issues about you know, whether Jesus was the Son of God, whether he rose from the grave, whether he thought of himself and taught that he was divine. These kinds of issues really are not predicated on a particular view of the Bible as, you know, he had inherited from fundamentalism. But one can maintain the inerrancy of Scripture without doing so in a very woodenly literal fashion. And that's, I think, where people would take issue with Ehrman, who do view the Bible as the Word of God, and do have an, an understanding of the biblical text that is, you know, well-grounded academically and, and uh, philosophically. Absolutely, and I do find quite a contrast when I read Ehrman and then I read other scholars and find that they are wrestling with the text in the kind of way that you've suggested. And I think it must be very frustrating for scholars who are wrestling with different genre, different style, and trying to make sense of the scripture in that way, and finding that Ehrman isn't doing that. It must be annoying in some ways. Um, how, how, um, how influential do you think Bart Ehrman is in the general culture? Well, I can only address the American scene, but mm. I would have to say, I think he's probably the most influential biblical scholar in America. I think more people know his name and refer to him in a positive way and claim to have gotten something out of what he has said than probably any other biblical scholar. Now, it's hard to quantify that, but he has been so vigorously promoted, particularly when Misquoting Jesus came out, which was his breakthrough best-selling book a number of years ago. Yeah, I found that a very disappointing book in many ways, actually. Well, it really was a popularization of his earlier academic mm. treatise, uh, The Orthodox Corruption of mm. Scripture. But it was definitely sensationalized. He sensationalized the issues to some extent. And then other people came along and they sensationalized Ehrman beyond what Ehrman himself said. A lot of people have really misused Ehrman's scholarship to try to advance their own theories that even he would not support. Mm -hmm. 
Well, as I was saying to you before the interview that I had read his Orthodox Corruption of Scripture and, of course, misquoting Jesus, and I thought that that first academic work, the Orthodox Corruption of Scripture, was very good, very revealing, very even-handed. But then when I read the popular kind of version of it, I was really disappointed. I mean, as I said to you, one of the things that really struck me was the way he made something of this fact, that there are more textual variants in the manuscripts of the New Testament than there are words in the New Testament itself, which, okay, may be true, but that's very misleading when it's said in that kind of way, because at other times he'll say, yeah, we've got the New Testament with a very high degree of accuracy. Well, what people need to understand are two facts. One is that the vast majority of those textual variants are spelling mistakes and secondarily grammatical mistakes and other kinds of variants that don't affect even how you would translate the verse. And that's the first thing people need to understand. That's uh, 80-90% of it or more are just irrelevant. They don't have any significant play in terms of understanding the text. And then the other point that people need to understand about this statement that there are more variants in the manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament is that that statistic is misleading because it doesn't take into account the fact that the reason why we have so many variants is that we have so many manuscripts. Mm -hmm. The bottom line is we've got millions and millions of words of the New Testament text, if you count all the different manuscripts. And then you've got maybe 300,000 or up to 400,000 total variants. But that means you've got millions of words that are the same. So it just depends on how you play with the numbers, whether you can make something sound, you know, horrifying and worrisome. But Ehrman himself isn't worried because he practices textual criticism professionally. And what he does in textual criticism is he looks at different readings and he assesses which one he thinks reflects the original reading. Mm. Well, the reason why he's able to do that is because he believes we have enough data, we have enough information to be able to reach a conclusion and that the original reading is there in the variants. You just have to find out which one it is. And 99% of the time, it's not very hard it's pretty straightforward. There is that 1% or so where, yeah, scholars have to work at it to decide which is the original reading, and they may disagree about it. But these are minor variants. Uh, Even the substantive ones are minor variants. We don't have any versions of John 1.1, for example, that says, in the beginning was Fred. We don't have any reason to think that we have lost the original contents of the New Testament books. What we have are the New Testament writings that were originally written with a number of variations, mostly minor spelling mistakes and such, and where we are not absolutely sure of the original wording. What we have is pretty close. It's close enough to be able to discuss what the writer was saying, what was going on in the context, and so forth. And that's what all biblical scholars, including Bart Ehrman, do. Okay, so if we move on to the book itself then, I'm going to make a very sort of brief indication as to what he's doing with this book, and I'm going to say it's something like this. The first Christians and Jesus himself didn't see Jesus as divine in any sense. This is what he's arguing. But following the resurrection or the early followers' belief that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead, um, the idea that Jesus was divine in some sense began to grow quite quickly leading up to what we see in the New Testament where Jesus is understood to be equal with God. But that was the end point of a process, a quick process, but nevertheless a process, and that high Christology uh, doesn't really fit with the historical Jesus and the earliest belief about him. Now, as I say, that's extremely 
brief. Uh, there's much more that needs to be said. So uh, could I ask you to give us perhaps a bit of a, a fuller impression of what Bart Ehrman is attempting to do in this particular book? Sure. I think the issue can be framed in this way. Recent uh, New Testament scholarship, particularly in the field of, of studying the development of Christology in the New Testament period and immediately beyond it, has increasingly come to the conclusion that the old liberal, skeptical, evolutionary view of New Testament Christology just doesn't work. The older view was the earliest Christians thought of Jesus as just a great teacher, maybe a prophet, and only after the church moved into the Gentile world and became predominantly Gentile in uh, background and culture uh, did this idea of Jesus being divine uh, start taking hold. So really you have a century or more, according to the older view, where people in the church generally thought of Jesus as just a man, even if a, a very great man. And what scholars have shown, scholars like Larry Hurtado, Richard Bauckham, Martin Hengel, what the scholarship has increasingly shown is that a divine Christology, a view of Jesus as a divine figure, shows up at the very beginning of the Christian movement. It is not something that evolves over a period of half a century or a century of people first thinking that he's just a man, but they begin to think of Jesus as divine almost immediately after his death. They begin showing devotion, religious devotion to Jesus, offering prayers to him, praise and worship to him, and increasingly articulating this in a theology that supports that. The idea of Jesus being a divine figure is something that originates right at the beginning of the Christian movement. So Ehrman addresses this problem, and it is a problem if you're going to hold to a naturalistic, agnostic, or materialistic view of Christian origins. How is it that you've got a group of people after Jesus dies who almost immediately begin thinking of him as divine and, and praying to him and worshiping him? Ehrman addresses this problem in his book, How Jesus Became God. That's the title obviously reflects the belief on Ehrman's part that Jesus wasn't God, but that he became viewed as God by his disciples later. Ehrman's basic thesis, if I could give it to you in a nutshell, is that the earliest Christians did very quickly begin to think of Jesus as divine, almost immediately. But they were able to do that because divinity in their culture, in their environment, was a much more elastic, more nebulous concept that could include exalted human beings, angels appearing in human form, offspring of divinities and human mothers, and other kinds of figures that were not the creator of the universe. And that it's the idea of Jesus as divine, meaning that he is God, incarnate that Ehrman tries to push off as as late in the game as he can while admitting that Jesus was viewed as divine in a lesser sense pretty much from the get-go. So that's the, basically what he tries to argue in the book. Mm -hmm. So if we take that groundwork, that uh, foundational position that he argues from. What do you make of that? Because his basic position, as you just said, is, you know, in the modern world, we tend to think of uh, the great chasm between the divine and the human, whereas he's saying in the ancient Near East, 
certainly in pagan culture, well, there was this sort of continuum, different kinds of divine beings and different levels of the divine. And he even makes the claim that within Judaism, there was something of this as well. So what do you make of those claims? Well, there certainly was a great deal of fluidity in conceptions of the divine in ancient Greco-Roman civilization. Mm. That doesn't translate into the traditional Jewish cultural context of Jesus and his disciples, his apostles. And I do think that Ehrman misses it here because he he attempts to attribute the conceptions of Jesus as divine to influence from Greco-Roman notions such as the divinity of the Roman emperor and things of that nature. But the problem with that is that the New Testament writings, in a variety of contexts and a variety of ways, exhibit antagonism toward those fluid concepts of the divine in Greco-Roman thought. A good example of this is the uh, account in the book of Acts of Paul and Barnabas being mistaken for Jupiter and Mercury, or Zeus and Hermes, Greco-Roman deities, when they went to uh, Phrygia. They were mistaken for these two deities, and Ehrman points out that uh, the reason why they could be mistaken for these deities was because the people in that culture already had a conception of divinities appearing in human form, and this could be some kind of example of how people might think of Jesus as, as a divine being. Well, the problem with that is Ehrman glosses over the fact that when the Phrygians mistake Paul and Barnabas for gods, Paul responds very forcefully in denying any such idea and says there's really only one God. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the one that provides life and all good things. Uh, you need to turn from your idolatrous view of natural things is divine and turn to the one true God. And this is in Acts 14, by the way, if people are wondering where this passage is, it's in Acts chapter 14. And Paul's response to the Phrygians on this point is typical in the New Testament. This reflects the view of divinity that pervades the entire New Testament. Mm. The New Testament writers just don't have this conception of divinity as this fluid, boundaryless conception that can be applied to all kinds of people and things without any difficulty. Well, I take your point from the point of view of the influence of the pagan world, but he does actually make the claim that there's something actually within Jewish culture that corresponds to this. And he points to angels and cherubim and demons as being, you know, well, they're not human, they're not gods, but they're somewhere in between. And he talks about the fact that in the Old Testament, there's this character, the angel of the Lord, that right. is sometimes spoken of as an angel, but at other times it's ambiguous. Is this God speaking or the angel speaking? And so he uses this to say, well, there is this kind of continuum within Jewish culture itself. So perhaps there is something to this. Well, it's a good point, because he does attempt to find some Jewish context here as well. He ends up falling back predominantly on the Greco-Roman precedents, but he does attempt to bring the Jewish cultural background into it as well. The difficulty is, it is true that Judaism does not simply draw a line between God and human beings and say there's nothing in between. Judaism affirmed the existence of supernatural beings other than God. They typically called them angels or uh, demons or spirits, at least in, in the New Testament era, rarely if ever referred to them as gods. That would be only in a very exceptional and unusual uh, and even idiosyncratic context. 
they generally referred to these supernatural beings in other ways because they didn't think of them as divine. They didn't certainly didn't think of them as beings that were properly objects of worship or devotion or recipients of prayer and that sort of thing. And again, this brings us back to the fact that in the New Testament, belief in Jesus as divine or as God is not simply a theological concept that's, uh, you know, one of the things that you check off on your list when you say, okay, I agree to Christianity and its doctrines. It's a practical aspect of the Christian life. In the Christian life, what we do is we honor, glorify, worship the Lord Jesus Christ as the God who made us and who redeemed us by his death on the cross. This conception uh, is rooted in the New Testament pervasively in the traditional monotheistic Jewish conception of God as the one who creates the world and sustains it and rules it as an unparalleled, incomparable divine being. You can get bogged down in the semantics of whether you might call angels gods or something like that, but there is a clear demarcation in Judaism between God and all other beings, whether they are spiritual or physical, supernatural or natural, doesn't matter. They are all subjects of the one Lord God who made all things and who rules all things from his throne in heaven. And the New Testament teaches us that Jesus sits on that very throne, and he rules over all creation from the very throne of God. And he receives the worship and adoration and praise and is the recipient of prayer that in Judaism was given to the Lord God alone. Mm-hmm. Well, I totally agree with you. However, although we can agree that the New Testament does teach that, what Ehrman does is a kind of archaeology, a kind of textual archaeology. And whether the fruits of his archaeology are right or wrong, he comes to this conclusion. Well, the person of Jesus, initially, he didn't understand himself to be divine in any way. His early followers didn't believe him to be divine in any way. And he was basically a prophet figure in the apocalyptic tradition. He had some sort of messiah consciousness, whether he thought himself to be Messiah at the time, or that he would become Messiah at some point in the future, but certainly not as a divine being. And as I say, this is, Ehrman would claim, his biblical archaeology of the text, as it were, right. would, would give rise to this. Now, can, can you explain how Ehrman argues for that particular picture of Jesus? Well, your analogy of him engaging a kind of archaeology of the text, or what we might call an excavation of the text, is quite correct. And what he really tries to do is to penetrate beyond the books of the Bible, as, uh, of the New Testament as a whole, and look at statements that are found within the text that he regards as, to change the analogy a little bit, fossils of an earlier view. So in a book that presents Jesus as divine, he may argue that uh, there are sort of fossilized remains of an earlier view in which Jesus was simply a prophet or teacher. In texts that appear to present Jesus as God incarnate, he will point to statements that he thinks are remnants of an earlier view in which Jesus was an angel or some other kind of semi-divine figure. This even extends to Paul, for example, where he will argue that Paul's own Christology was a kind of angel Christology, that is, the belief that Jesus was an angel in human form, 
but he will attempt to find earlier views in his evolutionary developmental theory of the origins of Christology so that you can get from a merely human Jesus to an angel within a very short period of time, 20 years in his reckoning, from the time that Jesus died to the time that Paul is teaching this in his epistles. And it strikes me that this kind of textual fossil hunting is quite subjective or quite difficult to pin down in a, in a very accurate way, I and mean, that would be my feeling about it. Well, certainly if you approach the texts looking for fossilized remains of an earlier view that you assume, for the sake of argument, had been there, and you find statements that seem to fit, there can be a, a subjectivity involved in attempting to pull out of these particular isolated statements, a Christology that the author himself doesn't seem to be propounding. There is some danger of subjectivity there. I think there's also a justifiable criticism is that the whole method assumes that an author, let's say Luke or Paul, would use language, use statements from an earlier disparate Christology in his own writings without realizing that what he was saying was somehow contrary to his own view. And so that's a serious problem. I also think that a lot of this ends up really exploiting a particular, and if one's not a Christian, certainly might regard as a peculiar aspect of the Christian view of Jesus, and that is that he's not just a man, nor is he just God, but he's God incarnate. And so you're going to have, if that's the view of any of the biblical writers, you're going to have statements that reflect the fact that he's understood to be a human, you're going to find statements that reflect the understanding that he's God, and they may not easily harmonize in one's understanding, especially if one finds the idea of God incarnate as a difficult concept to begin with. So I think that you have that complexity as well, so that if you're looking for a non-divine Jesus in a layer of source material in Luke or something like that, you certainly will be able to find it, because all of the New Testament writers view Jesus as a man. Yeah. Uh, and another thing that along these lines really surprised me is that Elman doubts that Jesus himself saw himself as this figure of the Son of Man. Yes. I had actually come across that before in an essay by Bruce Chilton. That's the only time I come across it, actually. I mean, I'd always understood that this was Jesus's main way of referring to himself as the Son of Man. And of course, that was understood to connote uh, Daniel 7, where this figure, the Son of Man, would receive the kingdom. Um, but uh, if the Son of Man is is actually stripped away from Jesus's consciousness, then that would be a main part of the evidence for his divinity in the New Testament being taken out of the picture. Do you want to react to that? Yes, because I think this is a crucial point in that Jesus, Son of Man language, ends up being used in ways that do reflect a divine consciousness. The Son of Man isn't just a human figure. But he is a figure that, as Daniel puts it, is one like a son of man, but who clearly has divine properties and, and prerogatives. And so what Ehrman does is, as others before him have done, is he exploits the fact that in many of the synoptic son of man sayings, Jesus refers to the son of man in the third person. Yes. So he will infer from this that Jesus thought of the Son of Man as someone other than himself. Mm -hmm. The difficulty with that is Jesus also, in numerous sayings, in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, refers to the Son of Man in such a way that in the immediate context, it is clear that he is referring to himself. 
So, for example, when Jesus says something like, Birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The disciples understand, and we understand as we're reading the passage, that Jesus is talking about himself, that he's an itinerant preacher going from town to town and doesn't have a permanent place of residence or a bed to call his own. Jesus is not saying, you know, there's going to be a figure that's going to come along sometime in the future, and he's not going to have a bed. You know, it's pretty clear that's not the case, but rather Jesus is referring to himself. Well, there are probably a couple dozen statements, Son of Man sayings, in the Synoptic Gospels where it's reasonably clear that Jesus is referring to himself. And what you have to do then is you have to claim that when Jesus refers to the Son of Man in the third person, and it isn't immediately obvious that he's talking about himself, those are authentic sayings of Jesus. But when Jesus refers to the Son of Man, whether in the third person or not, if the context suggests that Jesus is that Son of Man figure, that's not authentic. Well, that's a very question-begging way of reading the text. Yes, so that would be saying that that was kind of rewritten by the Gospel writers in order to make a Christological point that comes from a later time of reflection. Right, yes, and besides being very question-begging, there's really, I think, an insurmountable problem for that view, and that is that if the idea that Jesus was the Son of Man was a an idea cooked up by the church after he died and not something Jesus himself thought, then one would expect to find at least a good sprinkling of statements by New Testament writers where they themselves refer to Jesus as the Son of Man. We don't find that. Yeah. The New Testament writers almost never refer to Jesus as the Son of Man. Only in sayings of Jesus in the Gospels and in a couple of statements in visionary experiences of Stephen and John in the book of Revelation, do we find references to Jesus as the Son of Man. It appears to have been something that Jesus said about himself, language Jesus himself used, but the early church generally explained the person of yes. Jesus using different titles, different expressions, and not, at least certainly not routinely, using the title Son of Man. So that causes a serious problem for the view that it was the early church that first came up with the idea that Jesus was the Son of Man. And if it needs, it is part of Jesus's consciousness to consider himself to be the Son of Man as it had come to be understood in this way that's looking back to Daniel 7. Let me just read that from verse 13 in Daniel 7 because it's extremely striking in terms of its implications for divine status. So Daniel has this vision and, and he says, In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, which is God, of course, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will be never destroyed. So that's really quite an astonishingly high Christology there, if indeed that is the informational content that's being given to this title, Son of Man, if Jesus, in fact, owns that title himself. Yes. Again, I think the evidence from the, from the Gospels is uh, very strong that this was Jesus' way of speaking mm -hmm. about himself and that he was alluding to Daniel 7. This was not something that was simply uh, you know, made up by the early church and, and they made up sayings of Jesus that they put in his mouth in these Gospel passages, but that they are simply reporting what Jesus said. So this is what I would regard as one of the most serious weaknesses in Ehrman's account mm. of Christian origins. 
Now, of course, following through with Ehrman's argument here, then he sees Christology, a developed Christology, a higher Christology, being kick-started by this uh, resurrection or the early followers' belief that Jesus was resurrected, um, at least that. So I want to turn to what he says about 1 Corinthians 15 and the tradition that Paul presents there of resurrection witnesses. Um, When I spoke with Gary Habermas, he was definitely of the opinion that many, many people claim to have seen the resurrected Jesus based upon this 1 Corinthians 15 passage in excess of 500 people claim to have seen Jesus uh, resurrected. But Ehrman, in his argument here, whittles this figure right down to as few as three people. And he also seems to think that these few people might not really have seen anything. They might just have had hallucinations, analogous to bereavement hallucinations. So how do you react to those kinds of arguments? Well, there's a lot there to address. Uh, Starting with 1 Corinthians 15, most scholars are of the view, and Herman agrees with this at least up to a point, that at least part of that passage in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 to 8 reflects an early confession of the church that goes back to its earliest days in which they affirm that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead, and that he appeared at least to Peter, whom Paul refers to consistently in his writings as Cephas, Cephas, the Aramaic version of the Greek Peter, and uh, possibly going on to the other appearances that are mentioned there. And biblical scholars uh, have debated the exact extent of the confession. Some of them run it up through verse 7, some of them only up through verse 5, And there are variations uh, that have been advanced. But what everybody agrees, virtually everybody agrees, is that these four affirmations about Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, and appearances, were, Paul is getting this from an early confession that the church was using from its earliest days, from its Mm Aramaic-speaking first church. Yes, Gary Habermas said that he thought it most likely came from Paul's visit to Jerusalem. Yes, that seems to be likely the case. In his first visit to Jerusalem to meet with apostles after having become a Christian himself was uh, just a few years after Jesus had died. So this would be early, early Christian confession. Now, Ehrman, he wants to question the historicity of at least some of the appearances that are mentioned there, particularly appearances involving more than one individual at a time, yeah. although he, he has ways of finessing that problem if you, you want to defend the historicity of those group experiences, he will try to slough them off in another way. But he does try to limit the appearances to isolated individuals, and as you said, compares them to bereavement visions. Now, the difficulty with that that I would like to highlight is that Paul's recitation of the various appearances that included both individuals and groups of people are very much parallel in terms of their substance or content to what we hear in the Gospels, but are clearly also an independent recitation. That is, Paul and the Gospels are not getting their information from some common uh, source, nor is uh, the Gospels dependent on Paul or vice versa. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, And these examples sometimes involve what people think of as contradictions. (laughs) Paul refers to Jesus appearing to the Twelve 
Well, of course, the Gospels tell us that the Twelve was minus at least one individual, if not two, when he first appeared to that group, because Judas had killed himself. And Thomas, according to the Gospel of John, wasn't there for the first of these appearances. So if we just talk about the second one where Thomas is there, you still only have 11 men, not 12. Well, this isn't a contradiction in fact, because Paul's use of the 12 is simply a standard technical term to refer to the body of apostles, which may not have always had the entire quorum present in any one moment in time. But nevertheless, the fact that he refers to them as the 12 and not as the 11, as one might have expected based on a modern way of reading the text, is an indication that Paul's account is independent from what you get in the Gospels, where Luke, for example, tells us explicitly that it was 11. Does that necessarily follow? I mean, could it not be the same tradition? And yet Paul is just using the title that normally gets applied to these close followers of Jesus. And so it was 11 in the tradition, and he just said, oh, it's the 12, because that's how he would refer to it. Well, if it's the same tradition, it's a tradition that goes back to within a couple of years of the event. And my point is, he's not referencing some long-developed tradition that, yeah. you know, in the in the 50s, when he's writing to the Corinthians, that has somehow developed over time. Sure. But if they have a... But it may not be independent. They, they certainly have a common source eventually in the facts that, you know, the, the witnesses, experiences. But my point is, is that Paul isn't getting this from one of the Gospels, of course, because they hadn't been written yet. And uh, the Gospels aren't getting it from Paul, because if they're going to get it from Paul, they're not going to change Paul's wording in the ways that they do. They're not going to leave things out and add things that maybe people will have difficulty reconciling the details. There are enough differences between Paul's recitation of the appearances and what you get in the narratives in in the Gospels that it's Mm. pretty clear that there's no direct collusion or dependence of one on the other, but rather what you have is uh, they're going back to a very early understanding of what the witnesses themselves said. And most historians agree with that. I mean, most historians do not deny that there was a group of 11 disciples who reported having seen Jesus in the upper room. I mean, you know, there may be people that doubt that, but I mean, generally speaking, historians look at something like that based on the fact that you have these independent accounts. And of course, the gospel accounts are not entirely dependent on one another either, at least for some of the details. It seems to be accepted that that was something that people Mm. thought happened. And, of course, you always have historians couching these things by saying, well, the disciples thought they saw Jesus alive from the dead. They may doubt it, <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. but even Ehrman admits that some of them had these experiences. Yes, yes. Oh, absolutely, he does, yeah. But as we were saying, he sort of shaves away a lot of the claimed appearances. And are you saying that even if just that early part, verses 3, 4, and 5, contain this handed-on creed, even if that is the case and the rest of it is Paul has added this from his own recollections, that uh, Ehrman is still not making enough of that, that this really is something important in its own right? Well, sure, because, again, even Ehrman is forced to admit that this confession originates very early in the history of the Christian movement, and, in fact, attempts to mine the absence from that confession of any reference to Joseph of Arimathea in order to argue that the burial narrative in the Gospels is a later development. Why would he do that? Well, because he admits that the Corinthians' confession is extremely early. 
Now, the argument about Joseph of Arimathea is not a very good argument. It's simply an argument from silence. There's no reason why the early church, in composing a brief confession that they would perhaps recite aloud together in a congregational uh, setting, there's no reason to think that that would refer to specific individuals like Joseph of Arimathea or the women or whatever. It's a very stylized, crisp, and brief confession. And so the fact that it doesn't go into certain details is no argument against those details. No, he makes a, a really strange argument at that point, I think, to, to do with the balance of the symmetry of this little creedal phrase. I, I, yes. I, I find it very difficult to take that seriously. Um, I've got it in front of me here, haven't I? So does he say that it needs to be balanced in such a way as to say uh, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and there should be by Joseph of Arimathea, <laughs> and then that he was raised, and on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter. And so Joseph of Arimathea has to balance out yes. um, the appearance to Peter. Well, the subjectivity that you mentioned earlier comes to the fore here, because and I'll be frank with you, New Testament scholars have looked at the lack of symmetry, so-called, of the passage and attempted to address it in various ways. Much more prevalent way is to argue that Paul's editorialized here, and so the according to the scriptures part has been added by Paul to emphasize that this was something that fulfilled the scriptures. Others have tried to address it in other ways. But confessions did not necessarily take the kind of form that these interpretations are demanding. Uh, there was no law that said you couldn't no. run one line out longer than the other. It, it really is a very subjective approach to the text. What we know is that the early church, from its very beginning, affirmed that Jesus had died, that he had been buried, and that right there eliminates the idea that Jesus' body was simply thrown into a ditch or something and, and uh, lost or eaten by dogs or whatever, as Ehrman ends up arguing following John Dominic Crossan. So that they affirmed from the very beginning that Jesus had died, that he had been buried, that he had risen from the dead, and that he had appeared to people. And that's a bedrock set of facts from the earliest church's testimony. Now, oh. you can dispute that these actually are facts, but that the earliest church said these things happened is a fact. Yeah, okay, well, his next tack on this, then, is to say, well, if indeed what Paul adds to this bit of scripture here in 1 Corinthians 15, if we're to take that seriously in its own way, and that there were indeed these appearances of the risen Christ, nevertheless, we can say group appearances can be explained away by group hallucination, and he then talks about appearances of the Virgin Mary in modern times and says that, well, in some cases, up to a thousand people claim to have seen the Virgin Mary at the same time. So if that's reported now, perhaps something equally spurious was being reported back then. Yes, well, you can see from that that uh, Ehrman's intended foils here are evangelical Protestants and not Catholics, <laughs> because this argument would not phase a Catholic <laughs> one bit. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, like most of his students that are Christians are evangelical Protestants, and so he clearly targets them with this kind of argument. Now, I, as a former Roman Catholic and the one who does not accept the Catholic view of Mary or the Catholic Marian apparitions, you know, it's fair question to ask somebody who is a Protestant and doesn't accept the Marian apparitions, why not? Why do you accept the appearances of Jesus, but you don't accept the apparitions of Mary? 
Now, I mean, we could spend an hour on that, but uh, we better not. But uh, <laughs> sure. I'll just give you a couple of brief comments as to why we don't do that. And we've mentioned already the fact that Ehrman disputes the empty tomb. Mm. And I think this is a crucial issue here, because the empty tomb and the appearances of Jesus to the disciples, their experiences of seeing the risen Jesus, are in immediate and very close conjunction, both geographically and chronologically, such that any plausible historical explanation of what happened needs to account for both the empty tomb account and the appearances accounts. And hopefully it's going to be the same explanation for both, although it's conceivable that you could have one explanation for the empty tomb and a completely different one for the appearances that would not be one's first choice and uh, in fact those kinds of explanations begin to look very much like exercises in special pleading well in the case of the Marian apparitions you have an entirely different situation Mary has been dead for centuries or if she didn't die as a Catholic theology maintains she's been gone for centuries, and then centuries later, in a completely different part of the world, or parts of the world, she begins appearing to people in various places in Europe, and later on she appears to people in uh, Mexico or Georgia, and the connection between her disappearance from the the earth, however that happened, uh, which the New Testament and no early source gives us any account of Mary's death or her bodily assumption. The connection between that and these appearances is just not the same sort of thing as the connection between the death and burial of Jesus and his appearances just a couple of days later to people who knew him in this in the same geographic area. Yes, that's a very powerful observation there. But of course, this is why then presumably he wants to get rid of the empty tomb so that he's left with that sort of free-flowing ability then to uh, have a a different explanation for the resurrection appearances so he has to get rid of this empty tomb and so he goes for john dominic crossan's (laughs) idea that jesus wasn't given a proper burial but was perhaps even eaten by wild animals right the easiest way to get rid of the empty tomb is to get rid of the tomb and uh, (laughs) so that's what he does For those who don't know, John Dominic Crossan is a defrocked Catholic priest, and you've really got to go out of your way to get defrocked in the Catholic Church. (laughs) Crossan essentially doesn't believe in God. I know that people who are familiar with his teachings may be surprised at me saying that, but I I can back it up. Uh, Crossan doesn't believe in God, certainly not a God like the creator of the universe who does miracles and reveals himself and so forth. He doesn't believe in that kind of God for sure. And uh, Crossan denied that Jesus rose from the dead. You can't be a Catholic priest and take that position, obviously. At least you would hope. So Crossan takes the view that Jesus' body was not given a decent burial. It was thrown into a ditch or a shallow grave, shallow enough that dogs could dig up the body and eat it. And that's why the body was never found, because there was no body to find, and there was no place to find it. There was no burial spot. He was thrown into a, perhaps a, a shallow grave alongside other criminals in a graveyard where there were no markers and no, no way to identify bodies. Hmm. Well, in order to make this plausible, one has to ignore or discount in some way the accounts in the Gospels of the empty tomb. And that's what Ehrman also tries to do in this new book, How Jesus Became God. The problem is 
if you put off the empty tomb historically into the realm of a later legend or a later fiction, you have to explain something very peculiar. And that is that the Gospels demonstrate firsthand knowledge of Jerusalem and of the tombs, the burial places, and how they were arranged and how bodies were placed in these places. And you need to have firsthand knowledge of, of that environment. But we're supposed to believe instead that the empty tomb story was cooked up by perhaps a Gentile Christian living in Rome or someplace like that 30 years later or 40 years later. Well, that's highly, in fact, uh, most of these scholars, and I think Ehrman perhaps included, would say that Gospel of Mark, which they would say is the first gospel to have this burial narrative, was written very shortly after the destruction of the Jerusalem temple and the obliteration of the Jewish uh, establishment there. Well, those people writing circa AD 70, 72, are not going to have access to you know tombs in the Jerusalem area and be able to uh, know exactly how these things are done. Craig Evans has written extensively on the burial of Jesus and the tombs and the uh, ossuaries, which are bone boxes that the Jews used at the time where they would place the dried out bones of uh, their departed loved ones in these boxes and leave them in the tombs around Jerusalem. Uh, these ossuaries were made out of typically out of limestone. And he's written extensively on these tombs, very familiar with the archaeology of the area. And he has an excellent chapter in a response book that was written in rebuttal to Ehrman's book called How God Became Jesus. And I would argue that Evans' chapter in that book is the standout chapter. It's the best chapter in the book. And what he does is he really demolishes Ehrman's objections to the empty tomb, uh, showing, for example, that uh, it was quite plausible and did happen that criminals executed by crucifixion by the Romans in the first century could, and in some cases did, receive burial in tombs. Ehrman tries to argue that just wasn't done. Well, yes, it was. And that the Jewish establishment, that the Sanhedrin, the uh, religious council that led the Jewish people under Roman rule, uh, that they would have had a part in this. The Gospels and the Book of Acts make mention of this fact. Joseph is a member of that council, and he evidently acts with the council's permission or uh, backing in going to Pilate according to the Gospels, to obtain permission to bury the body of Jesus in his own personal tomb. Well, Evans shows that Ehrman's objection to that narrative are not grounded in good archaeological evidence. The evidence shows that that kind of thing did happen, and in fact, as I've mentioned and emphasized, that the Gospel authors know what they're talking about when they describe the whole story. And I picked up from Tom Wright, actually, he was talking about what John Dominic Crossan says about being eaten by dogs. And he makes the point that even if that were true, then wouldn't the disciples have known that fact as well? And therefore, that would still be a problem for Ehrman, wouldn't it? Because you have to not know what happened to the body in order to be right. free to believe in, in a resurrection. But if you know what's happened to the body, even if it's, you know, being eaten by dogs, you know that <laughs> you, you can't possibly believe in a resurrection. Yes. Well, that's, that's correct. And the, the evidence shows, in, in fact, that the early Christians did entertain non-resurrection hypotheses, the earliest disciples, before they came to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. And this didn't last very long, but they did 
briefly entertain non-resurrection explanations, but they were explanations of the empty tomb. So, for example, John reports that Mary Magdalene thought that perhaps somebody had moved the body from the tomb to a different location. Matthew reports that Jews in the first century were claiming that the body had been stolen from the tomb by the disciples. Now, what I'm pointing out here is that these two very different explanations of the origin of the Christian movement both conceded that Jesus had been buried in a tomb. That was a fact that everybody seemed to agree upon, and even people that didn't agree with Christianity and didn't believe in the resurrection assumed as a fact that Jesus had been buried in a tomb outside Jerusalem, just as the Gospels claim he had. So I, I, I don't know, I don't think Ehrman has succeeded in getting around this part of the, the Gospel account. And it's a crucial element, because if Jesus' body was in fact buried in a rock tomb outside of Jerusalem, and then he was seen, at least according to the witnesses, their experiences were that they saw the risen Jesus shortly afterward, you put those two together and the only plausible explanation is a resurrection. Yeah, in some ways uh, we need to have a discussion about the resurrection itself independently, don't we? Because there's so much that could be talked about uh, with, sure with that is. subject. Um, but we, we need to move on to the next stage in Elman's argument here, where he says that these resurrection appearances, most likely hallucinations in his view. Nevertheless, this Christological process uh, gets going with this. And so the early Christians come to view Jesus as having been adopted by God to some kind of divine-like status. So now they start calling him Son of God, right. and then they make the mistake of identifying Jesus with the Son of Man, which, of course, Jesus never thought that, but now they make this particular mistake. So in your response piece that you wrote to Elman's book very early on, you say that this whole scenario seems implausible in principle. There seems to be too abrupt a shift in the disciples' view of Jesus. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes, Ehrman's main thesis, actually, is that Jesus himself never thought that he was anything more than or other than a man, mm. and didn't expect to become anything more than a glorious earthly king, a kind of a super David. And yet, according to Ehrman, within a few weeks, or perhaps a couple of months of Jesus' death, the same disciples that had followed Jesus around and hung on his every word throughout Galilee and down to Judea, these same disciples within a few weeks were proclaiming that Jesus had been exalted to the right hand of God the Father in heaven, that he was the Son of Man, that he was going to be the judge of all the earth, that he was a, a, some kind of a divine figure ruling from heaven, and that Jesus himself never thought of himself as ever attaining that kind of status, but his disciples attributed that status to him almost immediately after he died. I think that's implausible because it means disciples are saying, we don't accept Jesus' own view of himself. Mm. We are honoring Jesus and praising him and attributing these, this great status to him that he himself never claimed, and which we know he didn't yeah. claim because we were his closest followers. How does he justify this disconnect? Well, he claims that the disciples inferred that Jesus had this divine status in heaven by interpreting their hallucinations of seeing Jesus alive 
in light of Jesus' own apocalyptic teaching that he had given them before he died, that the world was about to come to an end and the judgment was coming and so forth, and that they kind of put those two things together and made Jesus the center of the apocalypse. But Jesus himself didn't hold that view, according to Ehrman. And it really you know, raises the obvious question, why would they abandon Jesus' own view of himself? Yeah. Yeah, and a big spanner in the works with that one is the Son of Man. So the disciples apparently misunderstood everything Jesus was saying about the Son of Man, if indeed it was the case that Jesus was talking about somebody else who would come along in the future. So now suddenly the followers decide one of the Son of Man is Jesus. That is a problem in itself. It is. Yeah. Could you say something about the way Ehrman then insists that there's a kind of pushing back of this Um, higher view of Jesus into the narratives of the New Testament so that what he calls God adopting Jesus to this divine status can be seen in the birth of Jesus and in the uh, baptism of Jesus, that this was something that was written back into the story. Yes, uh, Ehrman's reconstruction of the development of Christology is that within a very short period of time, 10 to 20 years, it quickly passed through a series of uh, stages in which Jesus' attainment of divinity is pushed backwards chronologically in his life. So the earliest Christology, Jesus becomes divine at his resurrection. Then later on, somebody comes up with the idea that Jesus became divine at his baptism by John the Baptist. Still later, Not much later, though, the idea is uh, cooked up that Jesus became divine at his conception and birth. And this is connected to the virgin birth uh, narratives in Matthew and Luke. And then two more stages. Then there's a stage that says Jesus was a divine being of some kind, even prior to his conception and birth as a human, that he was already an angel or some other kind of semi-divine figure that was one of God's created supernatural servants. And then finally, the last stage is that Jesus never became divine. He always was because he is God. Uh, So that's the theory. And what is interesting about this is that Ehrman claims to find, as we referred to them earlier, fossilized remains of the earlier views in uh, texts, uh, in books uh, where later views are sitting right there next to them. Uh, So, really, Ehrman finds the view that Jesus was exalted to a divine status at his resurrection, that Jesus was uh, made a divine figure at his baptism, and that Jesus became, was a divine child of God in the virgin birth, all in Luke. All three of those are in Luke's writings. And to explain why they're all in Luke, Ehrman has to argue that Luke has incorporated into his narrative motifs and statements and uh, uh, stories uh, representing an earlier Christology that Luke himself has uh, grown beyond or developed beyond, but he sort of inadvertently uses materials that reflect the earlier Christologies that Luke himself doesn't accept. Well, that's very implausible. As I've explained earlier, it seems to me that Luke would know what he's talking about is conflicting with his own views if that was, in fact, the case. And you've just brought up this business about this angel Christology, and I did want to ask you about that because that really surprised me, actually, when I read that in his book. So he's claiming that there's this significant tradition of angel Christology prior to the writing of the New Testament and that Paul held to this idea. 
And if I've read him correctly, his point seems to hang entirely on one verse in Paul's letter to the Galatians. So this is chapter 4, verse 14. Let me just quote that. Though my physical condition put you to the test, you did not despise or reject me. Instead, you welcomed me as though I were an angel of God, as though I were Christ Jesus himself. And his point seems to be that here, you know, Paul is stating some kind of equivalence between an angel and Jesus. Do you think that's even a possible way of reading it? Well, grammatically, I guess it's possible. But contextually, in the teachings of Paul, uh, no. Galatians 4.14 is simply an example of a way of speaking in which you give one example and then you give an even more dramatic example. So uh, uh, Paul is saying, you welcomed me as an angel of God. In fact, you welcomed me as Christ Jesus himself. You know, it's like even better. You know, it's not saying Jesus is the angel of God, but that they welcomed him as honorably as they possibly could have. One reason why I would say that doesn't fit into Paul's theology is, A, it is, as you point out, very much an isolated instance. B, it's at least grammatically ambiguous at best that Paul is meaning to say that. And C, elsewhere in Paul's writings, including Galatians, Paul speaks about Christ in other ways that clearly show him to be not just an angel, not merely a created servant, messenger of God, but God's own son in a unique relationship to the Father, where there's a divine parity between the two persons. Paul opens up his epistles routinely by wishing his the recipients of his letters grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's two favorite titles sure. for Jesus are Lord and Son of God, and, and Lord is by far the more, the more common. Lord, in many of Paul's usages in reference to Jesus, clearly alludes to the Old Testament references to God as Lord or Yahweh, Jehovah. All of this uh, points to the fact that Paul has a different kind of Christology than what Ehrman is trying to extract from Galatians 4.14. By the way, I, I should mention that, ironically, Ehrman agrees that Paul refers to Christ as God in Romans 9.5 and tries to finesse that away by saying, well, he's God, in the, he's called yeah. God because angels can be called gods and so forth and so on. Well, at this point, Ehrman sounds like he's been reading too many Watchtower publications. <laughs> I, 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 you mean. It's a bizarre yeah. argument. And it doesn't seem very balanced, does it? He's, he's giving greater weight to this rather tenuous angel argument here and far less weight to a direct statement like that. Well, yes. And in fact, the way we ought to do theology and, and the issue that we're talking about here of Christology is to start with those passages in which authors most fully lay out or develop their understanding, their major passages on the subject, and then look at other texts that may touch on the issue. So if I want to look at what did Paul think about Christ, about who he was, I'm going to start with a passage like Philippians 2, 5 to 11, where that is clearly the uh, dominant point in the passage. This is who Christ is. This is what he did. This is what happened because of what he did. It's really focused on laying out kind of Paul's understanding of of the history of who Christ is and what he's done for us. 
Galatians 4.14 isn't doing that at all. Oh, but it's interesting, actually, that you bring that passage up, because Erwin does mention that, and he does kind of argue that that can fit with his angel way of looking at Jesus by saying that, you know, in the passage it said that God exalted Jesus to the highest place. Well, if Jesus had the highest place, you know, was divine to start with, then why would God be exalting him to the highest place later on? It must be, well, yes, he came from heaven, but perhaps he wasn't as high to start with. That fits with him being an angel, and then later being exalted to the highest place. Yes. Uh, for those who may not be uh, tracking with this very quickly, I should mention that uh, Philippians 2, and maybe we should start with verse 6, uh, where the at least semi-poetic uh, text begins. Uh, Philippians 2, 6 to 11, is a uh, very elevated text about Christ, and it really falls into two natural parts. Verses 6 to 8 talk about the humbling of Christ, the fact that Christ humbled himself, lowered himself to take human form and to die even the death of a cross. If you were to diagram this, you would diagram this as a, with an arrow going downward, uh, that this is a downward movement of Christ who was in God's form, obviously in a very high status, and he goes all the way down to dying the death of slaves, runaway slaves, and people like that in the Roman Empire, the death of a cross. That's the bottom rung of the, of the social ladder in Roman culture. And then the second half of the text is verses 9 to 11, where Paul says, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name. And on and on it goes, how high God the Father has exalted Christ. Well, this argument that why would God need to uh, exalt Jesus and give him the name and all this stuff if he'd already had it, ignores verses 6 to 8. Jesus has humbled himself. He's come in this meek and lowly, weak and vulnerable form of human flesh and taken on our, our frailty and died, essentially laying down all of the prerogatives and glory and of deity not ceasing to be God, in my understanding, but certainly laying down the uh, glorious form in order to come in this very humble form and to die. And so having done that, Christ put himself in a place where he looked to the Father to exalt him back to his rightful status. It's interesting to note that the verb that Paul uses there, uh, highly exalted, it's one word in Greek, appears only a couple times in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the only relevant example is a verse in the Psalms where the psalmist says that God, the Lord, Yahweh, is to be highly exalted above all gods. Well, Paul uses that verb <laughs> and says, the Father himself highly exalts Jesus above everybody else. Well, that's not saying that this is a man who has now been elevated to a higher status. This is talking about God being given his rightful due. Along these lines that we've been talking, I found especially unconvincing his treatment of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. Erdman admits that this is very probably a pre-literary tradition that Paul is quoting here. Now, let me just quote it. For us, there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. But he says that you know, although this verse very much connotes the concept of God's wisdom 
Paul saw that as uh, somehow compatible with this idea of Jesus being an angel. And I find it very difficult because I see there the language of the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Jesus seems to be identified in this passage with God. And Elman quotes this, and he claims that it can be squared with this angel Christology. I just came away from that thinking, why have you even drawn our attention to this verse? I thought that was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's not doing himself any favors by no. doing that, is he? Well, you're right about that. And for those who may not be uh, immediately familiar with this, the Shema is the Jewish confession that is taken from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, which says, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one, commonly translated even by the Jews in Paul's day, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Mm -hmm. And so what you have there are two titles or names of deity, Lord and God, and the emphasis is on there being one. There's one God, one Lord. The God of Israel is the one God. He is the Lord. He is God. Well, that was the earliest Jewish confession or creed. It was something that Jews would say as a kind of uh, religious ritual, as a confession that was representing the core of the Jewish religion. Paul clearly is using that language. We know this because in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 8, he's already alluded to it once, where he says, you know, not everybody knows this, but of course we know that God is one. And that would clearly be understood by his Jewish readers, and of course many of the Corinthians weren't Jewish, but some of them were. They would understand that's the Shema, that's, that's what we believe, that God is one, the Lord is one. So then when Paul says, to us there is one God, and one Lord, and of course he adds words in there to fill out what he's getting at, but the core element of the, uh, the parallel statement there in the, that passage is that there's one God, one Lord. Well, that language comes directly from the Shema. In fact, the Greek words there are the same Greek words in the Septuagint translation of Deuteronomy 6.4. So Paul is using the, the language of Deuteronomy in a, one of the most famous and maybe the most famous and crucial monotheistic texts of the Old Testament, and applying that language to the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this isn't an isolated instance, because throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul has been referring to Jesus as Lord in ways that equate him with the Lord God, Yahweh, of the Old Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians 1, where he talks about the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the day of the Lord is an Old Testament expression, literally, the day of Yahweh, the day of Jehovah. And he uses that language, and he does this many times in his epistles, in reference to Jesus, that it's the day of the Lord Jesus. So that's how Paul spoke of Jesus, routinely. So Ehrman is simply not going to be able to come up with a plausible way to reinterpret these verses to mean that Jesus was an angel, uh, you know, serving under the true God. Yeah. And uh, what uh, approximate date are we talking about here with 1 Corinthians? Uh, 1 Corinthians written about A.D. 54, 55, mm -hmm. something like that. So this would be uh, 22 years or so, at the most 25 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. And so we have here a window onto a very high Christology at that time. And yet in Ehrman's Reconstruction... We have to wait till John's Gospel until we can get something comparable. Yes, and I think many people misunderstand New Testament language in this regard and are misled by modern English, predominantly Gentile readings of the Bible, 
people often seem to assume that referring to Jesus as God is somehow a higher Christology than referring to Jesus as Lord. Now, of course, it could be if Lord was simply, you know, master or sir, mm. and there are verses in the Bible where the word Lord could be interpreted that way. So you have to look at the context. But when Paul refers to Jesus as Lord in the context of referring to him in such expressions as the day of the Lord, or paraphrasing monotheistic verses in the Old Testament like Deuteronomy 6.4 and applying the title Lord to Jesus in that context, and we could go on and give many other examples of this. When Paul does that and other New Testament writers do the same thing, Lord is actually a more explicit and higher way or more direct way of referring to Jesus as deity than even the title God is. So it's a complete misunderstanding to think that Lord is somehow a lesser title of Jesus in New Testament Christology than God. It isn't. The problem is, is that the title God is perhaps more easily understood in a Gentile context as a title of deity than the title Lord is. But they're both divine titles, and they're equally uh, referring to Christ as the creator of the universe in biblical thinking. Well, the last thing I want to ask you about, really, is the the latter part of Erwin's book, where he's kind of finished with that part of the argumentation, then he moves on to a common theme in his work, really, and that is of of, of history being written by the winners. And so, in this case, so-called proto-Orthodoxy, winning out over other alternative views of Christianity and in the process, suppressing dissent through uh, you know, developing the categories of orthodox belief and heresy. Now, I do think that there's a grain of truth here in that, you know, the view that predominates is almost necessarily going to proliferate itself in various ways at the expense of rival ideas. But I personally think there's a fallacy here because, you know, something that predominates isn't necessarily false just because it predominates, you know. Uh, um, <laughs> right. you know that's just the way I, I look at it. But I, and I can see... Good this, ideas usually do pretty well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can see there's some kind of truth there, but I think it's very much overstated. So could I ask you to comment on how Ehrman characterizes orthodoxy and heresy in the early church? And, and, you know, do you think he's being fair when he's talking about, you know, groups like the Ebionites and the Gnostics? Well, you know, Ehrman's generally a very careful writer. So uh, it's unusual to catch him in sort of an outright falsehood or something like that. But the general picture that is developed there, and in his other writings as well, ends up being a bit misleading because the impression that is given is that the orthodox view has no more or less going for it than these other heterodox or heretical views that the church ended up rejecting. Hmm. Now, he's tempted to lay out a case for this by arguing that there were pre-Orthodox views and the idea that Jesus was an exalted man or that he was an, an angel or that he was a, a, an offspring of God and, and a woman in his reinterpretation of the virgin birth, that these are early views that the church ended up abandoning and rejecting, even though there are fossilized remains of them in the New Testament. I have explained why I don't buy that, and I don't need to repeat that, but I will say this. If you read Ehrman carefully enough, and in particular, if you pay attention to who he says are the proto-Orthodox and where they're getting their ideas, what you find is this. The proto-Orthodox writers include most of the New Testament authors, if not all of them. And 
writers that we know from the late first century and early second century and on. So people like Clement and Ignatius and, you know, Justin Martyr and down to Irenaeus and Tertullian and all those people. They're all Orthodox or proto-Orthodox writers. And they start in the middle of the first century, within 20, 25 years after Jesus had died and risen from the dead. Who are the unorthodox or heretical authors who, who don't uh, fit into this developing orthodox stream of Christianity? Well, there are books like Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Judas, oh my goodness, Gospel of Philip later on, and uh, these other apocryphal Gospels are, of course, you know, many of them are well-known now or notorious. And much later on, you have the Arians in the 4th century and, and other Gnostic writers even in the late 2nd century. And the bottom line is, if, if you just put all these people on a timeline, it's the unorthodox theologians and writers who are the Johnny-come-latelys, who are the innovators, who are the people who are saying, we don't like that view of Jesus, we have a different view. The proto-Orthodox, as he calls them, are the earliest known representatives of Christianity. But then again, he would say, yes, but you could have evidence for proto-Gnostics by just looking at the New Testament texts themselves. You can see indications that there were such people around. Well, certainly Paul does refer to uh, opponents of his own teaching and that of the other apostles. So yes, by the 50s, you have alternate versions of Christianity beginning to emerge. For example, uh, you have people who are denying that there will be a future resurrection of the body that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians 15. But he can appeal, even there, to what evidently was such widely known aspects of Christian belief, that Jesus had died and risen from the dead and appeared to his apostles, that even Paul's opponents in 1 Corinthians couldn't plausibly deny it. Probably, uh, in fact, they themselves believed that Jesus rose from the dead. I have not seen, I don't think Ehrman has argued, I have not seen any cogent or plausible case being made that there was a form of Christianity in the first century that didn't think Jesus had risen from the dead. Even the Gnostic writers of the second century believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, they interpreted its significance differently, but they all agreed that Jesus had died or at least seemed to die, and that he had risen from the dead, or at least come to some kind of new form of life that was interpreted as a resurrection. There, there's no evidence for an early strain of Jesus movement belief in which Jesus was a dead figure who they hoped would, in the, in the future, someday be resurrected and become the Messiah or become something else. You don't find any group of people believing that Jesus was a great teacher and their understanding of the Christian faith was simply perpetuating the moral teachings of Jesus the sage or Jesus the wise man. There is no such form of Christianity anywhere, even among the opponents of the apostles in the first century or even into the second century. It just doesn't exist. So if you're trying to find a form of the Jesus movement that doesn't think that he's a resurrected messianic figure, you just can't find one. And I think Ehrman's reconstruction of the origins of Christianity bears that out. He doesn't find one. He finds versions of Jesus movement belief that view Jesus as divine in different meanings or different senses, but they're all affirming that Jesus rose from the dead, and they're all affirming that Jesus is in some sense divine. Again, the only way that he can make that work on an evolutionary naturalistic model is to equivocate on what it means to affirm that Jesus was divine by trying to read into the history 
various Greco-Roman pliable elastic conceptions of divinity that the New Testament writers themselves rejected. So his very writing of this book is attesting to the canonical materials that we have as being the sources we have to go to, really. Well, yes. Ehrman has consistently, repeatedly said in his writings that if you want to know what various Christian groups believed, you'll want to look beyond the New Testament. But if you want historical information about Jesus of Nazareth, the Gospels are the best you're going to do, the New Testament Gospels. And you're not going to find much of anything of any significance outside them, because they are by far our best. In fact, he says this in How Jesus Became God. One of the things that I appreciate about Ehrman is that he gets a lot of things right, uh, and many people don't seem to recognize that. Absolutely. That's what I wanted to ask you next, actually. Yes, indeed. Because, again, returning to that piece that you wrote, you listed about seven or eight things where you, you said it was quite refreshing to see Ehrman agreeing with many things that a lot of scholars would say, yes, we do believe this about Jesus. Yes. Uh, and if we could just get everybody to agree on these points, 97% or so of the nonsense that you see on the Internet about Jesus would go away. So Ehrman agrees that Jesus was a real historical person, not a myth. Uh, so the Jesus mythicists are wrong. In fact, he wrote a whole book arguing that Jesus was a real person. He agrees that Jesus was a Galilean Jew who preached the kingdom of God. He agrees that the New Testament Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are our best sources, and for all practical purposes, are only sources of information about the historical Jesus. He agrees that Jesus thought that he was or would become the Messiah, that Jesus was crucified at the order of Pontius Pilate, that he actually died on the cross, so you can forget about the swoon theory and things like that, uh, that some of Jesus' original followers, admittedly only three, but that some of them sincerely believed that they had seen Jesus alive from the dead, that this belief that Jesus had resurrected convinced the disciples almost immediately that he was a divine figure sitting at the right hand of God in heaven on the very throne of God. I mean, those are astonishing admissions from somebody who is an agnostic. You know, I wouldn't want to be churlish and say he should have admitted more. I mean, good grief. <laughs> but, you know, it's, of course, what he doesn't affirm, what he denies or argues against or, or raises doubts about that we can get exercised over, and, and rightly so. But my point is, is that for an agnostic scholar, he admits and agrees to an awful lot more than one might have expected. And uh, it provides at least a reasonable foundation for discussions about the historical Jesus. Indeed, and I think that will be quite helpful because, I mean, recently we had a debate on this podcast uh, with Ken Humphreys of JesusNeverExisted.com, who was arguing that, indeed, Jesus never existed. And here we have very clearly Bart Ehrman, one of the major scholars in the world, saying, well, there's no question, Jesus existed. You can't accuse Ehrman of some kind of religious bias here. He doesn't even know if he believes in a God, but he yeah. says it's clear that Jesus was a real person. He wrote an entire book devoted to this subject called Did Jesus Exist? And he lays out the case that Jesus was a real historical person and that we do know a fair amount about him. Not just that there was some guy named Jesus from Nazareth. I mean, even uh, the skeptics admit that's a possibility they can't rule out. By the way, one reason why they can't rule out is something like one out of every seven men living in the first half of the first century in Galilee was named Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it was a very popular yeah. name. So it would be odd if there wasn't somebody named Jesus who was from Nazareth. But uh, 
Yeah, well, to be fair to Ken Humphreys, he, he was actually saying, yes, well, there were many people called Jesus at the time, but he was arguing against the specific Jesus right. from Nazareth about whom such claims were made. But, right. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to talk about the debate at great length, but I think, <laughs> he, you know, he, he's a master of rhetoric, and I think he, he did a great performance, but in terms of the content of the argument, didn't convince me. <laughs> well, if somebody like Ehrman, who is prepared to question all of the miraculous and supernatural and divine claims that are made about Jesus in the New Testament, if he is convinced that Jesus was a real person, that he really was a, a somebody who went around the countryside in Galilee preaching and having disciples follow him and, and, and saying many of the things that the Synoptic Gospels at least report Jesus saying, and that he really died on the cross and so forth, I think the skeptics bear the burden of proof. And I often tell people, look, I understand if the atheist wants to put the burden of proof on the Christian for something like the resurrection of Christ. Because, you know, people don't rise from the dead every day. That's a very unusual occurrence if it happened, and a lot rides on whether it happened or not. So, sure, we shoulder some burden of proof to provide evidence that Jesus really rose from the dead. That's reasonable. But I'm not going to take the burden of proof to show that Jesus was a real person. Forget about it. The burden of proof is on the skeptic at that point. Yes, absolutely agreed with you. And, uh, of course, we've been very, very harsh, necessarily, with this particular book, although we said those few positive things about it there at the end. So what I want to ask you very lastly to close with is if you would say to people that you think this book is actually worth reading and whether there are one or two things that you'd like to say, yes, this will be the thing to read the book for. You can really get this particular thing out of this book. Well, I think in conjunction with what we've just been saying, if someone wants to know what can be known about Jesus, what is sort of the bare minimum that must be admitted about Jesus, even if you're a thoroughgoing skeptic, then Ehrman is the book to read, because uh, he does show that these things are clearly unavoidable fact. I wouldn't go so far as to say I recommend the book. I, I don't think I can do that. But I, I do think the book is for those people who want to get abreast of the state of biblical scholarship and read something that can be followed by people that don't know Greek and you know all that, then yes, this would be a book to be familiar with. I'd also encourage people to read the response book that was published yep. by Zondervan on the same day called How God Became Jesus. Michael Byrd, Craig Evans, Simon Gaither-Cole, and other scholars came together to contribute essays to this book. And the reason why they were able to do that, by the way, is Zondervan and Harper One are owned by the same parent company, Harper Collins. So they'd simply made an arrangement to look at the manuscript of Ehrman's book and be allowed to compose a response to it before it actually came out. By the way, that's why I was able to write a review of both books immediately after they came out, as I got advanced copies. I, see. I, I was surprised at how quickly you managed to pull that off. <laughs> you were in the know, yes. <laughs> I had people accusing me of not having, I couldn't have read the books very carefully uh, and come up with those responses, but I, I had been looking at them for a couple of weeks prior. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yes, you're, you're one of the in-crowd, that's how that happens. <laughs> Well, Rob, it's been great to have, uh, well, one of the in-crowd um, on the, the podcast talking about these things. I've been looking forward to this conversation, and you've certainly given us a, a very good overview of the book and the many problems with it, but also some of the positive things that can be said about it. So thank you ever so much for joining us to discuss this. Um, just before we end the conversation, I'd just like to ask if you could direct people to your website and the kinds of things that you've got there. Yes, thanks. It's been my pleasure to be on uh, with you. And uh, our ministry is called the Institute for Religious Research, I-R-R dot -R 
ORG. And we're a nonprofit evangelical Christian organization based in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in the United States. And what we do is we provide resources and teaching in the general field of apologetics. Our area of specialization historically over the last 25 plus years has been Mormonism, but we also have resources on the reliability of the Bible, uh, resources addressing arguments of Jehovah's Witnesses, which turn out to be uh, of some relevance to the Ehrman book, as we've mentioned, and other subjects as well. So I invite people to visit our website, and they can also contact our organization. We have a contact page there, irr.org. Absolutely fantastic. Well, as I say, thank you ever so much for coming on. It's been a wonderful conversation, and I look forward to perhaps speaking to you again one day. I'd love to. Thanks. Thank you ever so much, Rob. It's great to speak to you. All right. Hey, thanks. Terrific. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.